Welcome to the Who Cares podcast brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at Georgia Southern University. Welcome back to Who Cares, Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars. Today, Ryan and I are pleased to bring Dr. Travis Swanson, who is an assistant professor of geology and geography in the College of Science and Mathematics at Georgia Southern University. So Travis studies a lot of geomorphology, sedimentology, and physical hydrology. And he really looks at the way the behavior and sedimentary records set up these systems of coastal aeolian fluvial systems. Is that, did I Ooh. get that right? Because I, I honestly, I know some of those words. I think even using the word behavior is problematic uh, because it, it's, uh, that's associated with uh, organisms, right? Uh, and, and notably, geology and landforms don't have behavior, they have phenomena. But however, I just think behavior is a nicer word. Uh, so okay. so it's, I've even chosen some of the words for myself inappropriately, and these are big words uh, for most people, right? And, and uh, it helps people communicate within a certain niche of science, but outside of that, it really walls it off, and it makes it not so great okay. for uh, communication. Well, that's one of our goals here is to, to try to break through those walls so we can bring what you do uh, to, the, to the wider population. Yes, definitely. And, you know, I'm, I'm still focused on this geology, geography, and I think we often think of geologists as like, well, you study rocks, right? Most do. Most do. <laughs> <You> do <laughs> some geologists study materials before the rocks. Some of them study rocks in different uh, planetary bodies. Geology is a very broad umbrella. And, and it uh, casts a big shadow over many, many, many disciplines. So geology itself uh, is, is a particular science. However, usually departments are known as like the geological sciences or the earth sciences. So just because someone happens to be in a department named geology or geology and geography, usually the, it, the individual could study something way different than your uh, typical geologist. Awesome. Well, that's a good that's a good segue into then now. So break down what it is you do. We, we, we threw out a lot of big words there, and I, I kind of got lost in some of the terminology. So tell us what you do. What I like to do is uh, look at uh, modern environments like desert uh, dune fields, uh, modern rivers, and uh, coastal line systems, and try to understand the way that they're changing and why they're changing within a physical framework usually through simplified physics. Uh, then I try to take that information and relate it to our ability to interpret deposits from ancient systems, like ancient dune fields, how they left behind sandstones, and uh, uh, similarly, how ancient rivers left behind, well, sandstones and, and other types of materials. Uh, and then uh, in terms of the physical hydrology side, that's kind of not wholly related uh, in that I, I have a background in physical hydrology and sort of shifted gears a little bit towards sedimentology and stratigraphy and, and geomorphology later on. Okay, so sedimentology. See, I still keep thinking sedimentary rocks because I think that's what most people are familiar with is because we learned about those in school. Yes. Are we, is, it, is there any correlation with sedimentary rocks? Or yeah, it... ba basically all processes that go to make sedimentary rocks. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, whereas sedimentary geology would be more about the study of sedimentary rocks in the context of deposits and basins 
and a bigger, broader scale, maybe in a less process-oriented uh, framework. So walk me through a, a typical day uh, in the, the life of your work. Uh, what, are we, what are we doing? Are we spending time in the lab? Are we in the field? Are we doing chemical analysis? Are we what, hanging out on the beach? Are we, well, just, are we doing <laughs> physical, uh, physics math problems? You, you do what you got to do to address each and every problem. Sometimes you don't exactly know all the ingredients that need to go into a project until you're you know, 90% of the way done. Sometimes it requires lab work, sometimes it requires field work, sometimes it requires numerical work or work, simulation work on a computer. Um, usually my scientific foresight is good enough to know what tools will go into solving the problem. However, occasionally you're just dead wrong. Uh, you, you, you go in and you try and figure out uh, the, if your hypothesis is valid or invalid and then you find out that the data that you collected in the field really didn't test your hypothesis or the model is uh, just totally inappropriate for testing that particular hypothesis and you have to retool. However, for, for me, typically what I go to are uh, simple numerical models or computer simulations of physical systems, be it a hydrological system uh, or a sedimentological system uh, and also field work to make observations in more modern environments. So are we taking the data that has been collected in years past by geologists and you're comparing it to what the, the terrain looks like now? Or Sometimes. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so so you know, be, stealing, uh, borrowing, you know, uh, you know, literature, mining, data, you know, whatever you want to call it, it it's a very common tool uh, for, for geological studies because there's so much variability uh, on the earth. And so in order to understand where your particular river sits in terms of how fast the channel is eroding or how fast it's depositing material, you need to understand the broader context of the global rivers. And so you definitely do a lot of data sharing through uh, official channels and through the literature. Well, and geologic processes take a long time. They do. And that brings in why people would choose to go into the lab or go to the computer. It's because uh, you, can't, you don't have 100,000 years to watch a delta be constructed. So why would you, be, why would you force yourself to uh, you know, patiently wait generation after generation of geoscientists studying a singular delta when you could scale everything down to something that fits on a, you know, a meter by meter table and you could watch the same processes, more or less, happen right in front of you on the time scale of an hour or three instead of you know, 100,000 years. Right. So that, that's it's a, an advantage to walk into the lab. That would be a case where maybe, you know, in order to answer a specific question, you need to go to the laboratory. Okay. So I'm starting to get a picture now, and, and I just keep thinking in my head, sea level rise. Is that something, I mean, because I always see that in terms of biology. Is that something, geolo I mean, is this something like sedimentary scientists are oh, concerned about? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's entire fields of geology. Uh, subdisciplines that are totally focused on sea level uh, change as being a driver of deposition all along the margins of continents. Uh, and so a lot of times people uh, look to the external, like sea level, or you know, as forced by changes in orbit, uh, changes in, in uh, you know, land cover on our, our uh, planet, changes in the arrangement of spe specific uh, continents. Uh, to uh, to explain what they see in the rock record, 
Uh, however, sometimes it's not always that clear cut that just because sea level increased or sea level fell, that that's what caused the deposit that you see when you drive down the road and you see that road cut. Hmm. So what else could be causing it? Oh, so many things. Uh, so so uh, in the geology, there's uh, a separation between external drivers of change and internal processes. And so within any particular compartment on Earth, if you want to think maybe like a shoreline, shoreline contains a delta, uh, that, that delta, deltaic system is growing in mass as the river is dumping its sediments and growing it. Because it's growing in mass, it also has a local change in the gravitational field of Earth. Therefore, it attracts more water towards it and can cause its own changes in sea level just because you've emplaced a large mass of sediment on the coast. And so sometimes those changes in sea level adjacent to, say, a deltaic system could be equal to or maybe even greater than changes in sea level associated with uh, changing content of ice masses on land. I'm a little blown away. All I, 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 I am too. I'm thinking about... Deposition changing the Earth's magnetic field. Did I get that? No, no, not field. not magnetic field. Okay, sorry, uh, sorry. The gravitation, gravitational. Gravitational. Yeah. yeah. So, so gravity is not a constant over Earth. Uh, it varies with the amount of mass that there's locally. Uh, so, if you take a bunch of uh, material and put it in a place that where there used to be maybe a less dense material, you're certainly going to change the gravitational field of Earth subtly locally. And so what, what kind of stuff would gather to change the gravitational force and, and uh, bring oh, more water in? Sediment. Sediment. And, yeah. and what, what is in sediment? Well, uh, it's the detritus of our continents. It's uh, what's weathered and been transported, you know, from kilometers to hundreds and thousands of kilometers to arrive at its, well, at least its initial resting place. So typically it's quartz. Uh, it's quartz is, the, quartz is the mineral, and the grain size would be some form of sand. If it's not quartz, it's usually mud. These are very, very gen gross generalizations. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> but absolutely. Uh, that's typically what, what arrives at the coast. At the coast. So these um, processes that are happening on the coast, from I'm guessing from wave action and just the tides and that sort of thing, it, it do correct me if I'm wrong on that, but then do they also have to, do, they have to affect what's happening inland, right? How far do processes that operate on the coastal boundary propagate up into the continent? Yes, uh, that's exactly a, my question. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I think it, it really depends upon what is your coastal boundary, what, what makes it up. Uh, here on, along the uh, South Atlantic Bight, uh, we've got the, an incredible tidal range. And so therefore, in terms of a hydrodynamic forcing, we see significant up-channel uh, propagation of information for a big distance, because simply we're raising and lowering sea level daily, twice daily, uh, at, at the coastline, and, and it, that tidal signal propagates up onto the continent, not very, very far, but you know, far enough that it, it makes uh, it lo this coast look significantly different than, say, microtidal coasts like the Texas coast. Um, that's, that's one way. Uh, simply having a landmass next to an ocean, you're going to affect the circulation of wind locally because of daily heating and cooling of the land compared to the sea. And so that's one way that a coast would uh, it, it modify, or being near a coast would allow you know, information to be carried inland as well. I have so many questions popping around in my head here. Um, 
guess my big one now is that it, when we're talking about tides in school, you know, you're talking about you, you have the low tide and the high tide, and they sort of make it sound like these things happen everywhere, but you're just saying like the, the depth of the tides, you've got micro tides in Texas, which I'm not really sure what a micro tide is. Growing up on, on the Georgia coast, it, again, twice a day, we've got these huge changes in tides. Isn't that all just affected by the rotation of the earth and the moon? And they, and I'm probably getting off of sediment, but I'm very curious about this title. <laughs> well, t tides are complex. Uh, it, when, when you break it down, uh, that basically the biggest drivers of, of tides are the sun and the moon uh, in the opposite order. And <laughs> uh, in, in that, you know, when the sun and the moon are aligned, you get either the, you get the biggest tides, tidal range, and when they're at, at orthogonal angles to each other relative to, to Earth, you get the, the smallest tidal range. Basically, what, what that does is it sets up two bulges of water, if you will, on Earth. And Earth rotates every day. And what Earth does to get two tides every day is you, you, Earth is rotating through squished oceans into, uh, it, twice a day. And so that's what gives us our two tides. And there's a lot of complications that go into that, depending upon the specific configuration of your coast, uh, how, your, your basin, etc., uh, but I actually, that's a blind spot for me. I don't know a lot about those processes. Okay, fair enough. Let's, let's talk about your work uh, yeah, in, in trying to understand like the changes in a, in a waterway. I think you mentioned rivers and uh, what kind of changes are we observing? Just changes in the way that the, the, you know, the, the bends and, and curves or changes in the flow rate of the, of the river? Yeah, typically, my, my prior work has focused on changes that mostly on the minutes to hour time scale. Uh, the, within a river, there exist many scales of bathymetric features uh, that might surprise you. You typically think of sand dunes as being something that's in a desert. Well, in a lot of rivers, there's sand dunes as well. They just happen to be a little bit smaller. Uh, they are limited by, of course, the depth of the water flow. They can't grow out of the water and, and into the air. Uh, on scale uh, smaller than sand dunes would be ripples, little sand ripples. Typically, they're uh, smaller, uh, but they can exist superimposed or stacked on top of dunes themselves. So seeing dunes and ripples together, are, it's common. Uh, dunes and ripples can also exist on top of bars and rivers. Uh, so sandbars themselves can either be attached to a bank, they can be longitudinal bars that occupy the center of a channel, they can be transverse bars that also are in the channel but are oriented a little bit differently, uh, and the, the, they can grow to, to occupy basically the full depth uh, of the channel, uh, but a fraction usually of the width of the channel. Uh, so on top of the bars, we have dunes and ripples, and maybe on top of the dunes, we have ripples. And in places, there's no features at all. There's plain beds, planar beds. And, and although they may not have any, you know, asymmetric form like a dune that has a shallow sloped upstream face and a steep sloped downstream face, uh, they're very active too. Grains roll, slide, and collide, and saltate over each other as that sediment is being brought uh, downstream. Or if you're below the threshold of flows that can transport sediment, you're too tranquil, then, well, you do have a, a very boring bed of absolutely nothing happening. Nothing happening. 
It's yeah. nice to know that, that stuff doesn't happen sometimes. Yeah. But is, is all that sand deposition, I mean, are we able to look at where that sand came from and sort of track its course yeah so there, there's a concept of provenance uh and that would be to try and find the source of sediment uh there's a lot of people that work that problem uh some of the times you look at uh, detrital grains such as zircons and you can date them and you can figure out okay well here's a population of age dates of these grains uh and th that correlates to this timing of this uh, uplift of tectonics and so you've got a source area that's going up in elevation providing headwaters and material to erode and then you found those ages of materials in your deposit and you can say oh yes well obviously this deposit at least in part is sourced from the uplift of this particular mountain range uh, so that, that is a, a particular field there uh, there's other simpler ways to do it you that's a more recent method you can also just look at the composition because what's in the sediment sample has to come from somewhere right mm -hmm. and so that would be what's eroding is what's transported except for what's chemically modified by either uh, abiotic or biotic chemical reaction along the way so i imagine that would be beneficial to know i think for what you're doing kind of in, in a in a loose way it's like if, if i know where the sand is or the sediment or the deposition is coming from it gives you a better way to, to determine maybe what's going to happen with it it can be. Uh, and then there's even a, another way you can artificially seed, uh, you know, an area on along a coast or in a river with uh, tracers. The tracer could be a fluid that's dyed. It could be grains that are uh, magnetic and you trace them with a, uh, a you know, some sort of a loop of wire hooked up to a sensor. Um, there you can even have particles that are smart rocks that have data loggers and GPS and, and all sorts of ways to communicate back home uh, and are clever cobbles, if you will. Uh, and, and so people do this. Uh, back in a few decades ago, people also uh, dropped in irradiated sand. They don't do that anymore uh, for environmental reasons, but that's a very easy uh, particle to track is one that you, know, you can track because of radiation. Good point. Good point. So, so this brings me to the big question, uh, and the, the title of this podcast is Who Cares? And so what's the goal of the work? Why should people care about what you're doing? What's the, what's the ultimate end result that you'd be working toward in this work? I've been thinking about that all day. I've been thinking about it for a long time. And I think that, you know, there, there's several answers I'd like to give you all. Uh, the first one is that uh, there's different kinds of knowledge, right? The pursuit of knowledge is its own, has its own merit. However, the pursuit of actionable knowledge has a different quality of merit associated with it. And so I, I think that uh, my drive is to give uh, people tools to be able to interpret the epic poem of sedimentary deposits that are encoded on Earth, on Mars, on other planetary bodies. Uh, another uh, take on what I do would be to provide simple tools to be able to forecast change. Uh, for example, barrier, coastal barrier island responses to sea level rise. It's another project that I work on as well. Uh, so in that way, you know, distilling down a complex system into its most fundamental processes and uh, using that model to inform informed by real data that represents a real physical system uh, to make meaningful, hopefully meaningful, 
uh, forecasts of what could happen in the future. It's unreasonable to think that our forecasts will be 100% accurate, uh, but at least it's beginning to work the problem. Uh, so who cares? Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I speak to a few different audiences, mostly specialists, which is worrisome, if you ask me, uh, but also potentially stakeholders and coastal communities as well. Well, I can, just based on what you're saying, I think it's, it's a little hard to wrap your head around individually, but if you look at what you're doing in a much broader context in terms of, let's just say sea level rise, because it's an easy thing for people to wrap their head around, this is just one piece of the pie to look at um, for how we need to potentially address this in the future. Knowing what data you've collected, what, what potential future outcomes could mean, um, what, what the ground and the land has looked like in the past, what we could look like again, but knowing that these processes are not stopping. Yeah, and maybe that, that's a good point to talk on is, is just, you know, sea level rise, it's an easy thing to wrap your head around. Well, it's not. It's really hard. Um, it's not a, the, the ocean is not a bathtub. Uh, water just doesn't go up and the land stays still as sea level rises. Uh, sea level rise is the gas pedal of coastal change. And as water deepens around our coasts, processes that were operating at one rate will change. Some of the time they accelerate, uh, some of the times they, they don't. However, one thing is very clear is that the, the rate of coastal change will in itself change. So that is an acceleration, right? Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so even, even thinking about, you know, uh, sea level rise, it's a more complicated story than islands drowning. They respond dynamically and can even roll up their own coastal plains and keep up with sea level rise sometimes. However, sometimes that behavior is also chaotic. <laughs> so it, it's a, it's a, it's a grand challenge, and, and I think that uh, even in the case of sea level going up, the story is, is not clear. It's not clear. Well, and I guess I mean, it's just, it's usually, I'm glad you said that, because people think sea level rise, they either, you know, believe it or they don't, and there's so many more nuanced um, processes happening there, because now I'm thinking, well, if you're trying to mitigate sea level rise, and you're seeding your shores with sand or you're building things that's now affecting the gravitational pull or the gravitational force of the earth, which could be affecting how the oceans and the, it, it, it's just going and going and going. So we really have to know all of these processes ahead of time of what could happen. It, there's an element of, of my work and others' work that tries to reduce uh, the complexity of Earth into, you know, a, take on a reductionist point of view and go to the simplest processes, build them up one by one by one to, you know, someday arrive at the total Earth simulator where you'll be able to run your supercomputer and forecast change all over the globe. Uh, that, that's, that's certainly an element of, of my work. And, and, and if we know this information, we can maybe prepare for it or work toward uh, mitigating it in some way. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so if you think about how people respond to coastal hazards, a lot of people look back in time. They look through historical change to try and anticipate what could happen in the future. And that, that's, that's dangerous because... Again, with sea level rise, processes change. So the rates of historical change with lower rates of sea level rise 
don't necessarily represent future scenarios with accelerated sea level rise. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think that idea that the process of processes are changing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something that I hadn't given any thought to, like, as the sea level was rising, again, I think that we just get this idea that the, the water's coming up and, and don't think about, well, that's all these other processes are being affected by that as well. So your, can your work in what you're trying to model directly help us in the future potentially think about how to mitigate sea level rise? Or is it is it more what's happening right now and somebody else can take it in the future? Well, I, I think a lot of times, you know, when you're working on basic research, you don't necessarily know how your work is going to be applied in the future. And, and just, I think it might sound crazy, but a, a lot of older geologists, I don't think they anticipated the role that geology would play in interpreting data coming back from Mars. They didn't anticipate that, you know, geologists would tell stories about, you know, or inter stories, interpretations, <laughs> grand interpretations of what happened on the Martian surface billions of years ago. Uh, but there's no welcome center to Mars, so when you get the data, you need to use your toolkit that you do have as, you know, a global community of scientists and one of those, you know, more robust toolkits happened to be geology that was developed on Earth, but also equally applicable to the deposits on Mars. Um, one more time with the question. <laughs> I sort of lost it now we're talking about Mars. Um, I guess I was thinking, like, how can your work help us understand or mitigate sea level rise in the future, potentially? Well, a, a lot of processes on the coast are hard to understand because they're hard to measure. Uh, one would be uh, storm processes, so things that happen during hurricanes. It takes a lot of convincing to get some field assistance to go make measurements during a hurricane. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, I can only imagine. <laughs> uh, I, I don't do that kind of work. Uh, but but as, as a consequence of the hazards and the nature of storm events, uh, there exists few studies on how storms transfer sediment around on coasts. Uh, the, number one, they affect broad swaths of coast. Uh, number, number two, the processes that are occurring are below lots of cloud cover, intense precipitation, and damaging storm surge and waves. So it's hard to get ground truth measurements. Just recently, within the past you know, 25 years or so, we've begun to really intensely scan our coasts quite literally with lasers, uh, so-called LIDAR, uh, LIDAR surveys uh, that are done with, uh, with airplanes. And with these types of surveys, you can get decimeter scale accuracy uh, over you know, tens of kilometers of, of, of coast. And you can take these uh, scans at before storm and after storm and difference them in terms of their elevations to figure out where, where has land eroded, where has it been deposited. And what people found out is that it's wildly complex. <laughs> that even the case of a single storm making landfall on a coast near where the, the eye goes over the land, where the storm track is, that tends to be erosional. But then away from that, storms can actually build new land and make uh, barrier islands have more sediment on top of them, uh, help uh, bolster their ability and their long-term response to sea level rise. So even in the case of you know, a process that would seem to be destructive, like a storm, there's actually positive gain of material above sea level as a result of storms. 
so part of my ongoing research, some pending support from a National Science Foundation, would be uh, a some work to be able to use computer simulations and field studies to understand how, when, and why storm processes can bring sand on top of low-lying barrier islands. Hmm. Very cool. Well, I hope you get some funding for that. Um, Ryan, did you have any other questions for us? Well, I've learned a lot. Uh, these are terms that I've, I'm not familiar with, and, and uh, I certainly know the, uh, the value of basic research. Uh, I'm a social scientist, but I, I do the work in the, in the basic sciences, too. And being able to translate that into, into why people should care is really what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. Because uh, a lot of people see that work, and it's uh, I, I'm not I can't put words in people's mouths, but they see a scientist out there gathering sand and um, moving it from one place to another, and maybe looking at it on a microscope, and and really wonder why. But the building of knowledge starts right there. It's the it's the it's the curious mind, and then trying to uh, and then other people will come in and they will take that information and build up upon it. And it seems that what you're doing here is really uh, foundational in trying to understand the way that the Earth changes. Yeah, and, and one could we could bring the you know the conversation back to tides, mm -hmm. and to totally understand and predict tides, you not only need to understand you know the dynamics of the external forcing and the shape of the, the shoreline and how that's going to affect tidal variation, but you also have to understand how is your shoreline changing with time? Because if you don't account for the dynamic factor of how the, the shoreline changes, you won't be able to accurately forecast into the future. Uh, so it, it, it's, it, you know, the sedimentary, or the geomorphic change, the, the, the sedimentary side of things, although it may not be very straightforward, it's also a part of making basic predictions when it comes to uh, sea level rise, tides, and, you know, building towards that total earth simulator where your weather forecast also comes with a beach erosion forecast uh, if you're a coastal community maybe. Right, and we couldn't get to this total earth simulator without the basic research that doesn't seem entirely applicable to a pressing need right now. Yeah. It's each of those little pieces of basic research that add up to us being able to do that uh, simulation where we can predict what the earth is going to look like in 100,000 years. That <laughs> would be an incredibly lofty goal. Right. Yeah. But that would be But fun. I can see exactly what he's saying. It's yeah. like again, you're you're fitting in a piece of the pie of the morphology of a coast that then feeds into people understanding what has happened with what potentially could happen so that they can make greater plans. So it, it, yeah. and really that whole piece of bringing in the physics of it, I never thought about physics and geology. Um, till you started mentioning that, and I think that's where people, it is a very interdisciplinary field, I guess, and I think people, again, they get stuck on, oh, geologists, you study rocks. I like to think of geology as kind of like liberal sciences, where, where you, you, you need to solve a problem, with you've got some sort of chemical information, oh, I better talk to a chemistry colleague, right. <laughs> you know, better talk to a physicist, better talk to somebody that actually knows something about the problem that I need to solve. I just have the context for that problem. But that, that does help because it does spread out our understanding of what's happening in these processes. Um, and, and, you know, it, it was interesting to hear you talk about the, the storms and how they are constructive and destructive at the same time. And keep thinking back to, you know, nature will find a way, you know, to take care of itself. It, our world may look completely different in 100,000 years, 
but without the data that you're collecting today, our future generations aren't going to know how it looked. Is that good, yep. good correction? Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure because you're like, nope. It's all good. Travis, I cannot thank you enough. I have learned a lot as well, and every time I, I sit and listen to you talk, I, I learn more and more about what I don't know and what I still need to know about what's happening in our coastal plain area of Georgia, particularly, but also more broadly about just plan planetary dynamics in some respects. Um, so I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure, and we hope we can have you back someday. Well. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to be here, and uh, I really would appreciate an uh, invitation to return. All right, excellent. Wonderful. Thanks, Thanks so much. much. Take care. This has been Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars, brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at George Southern University. The opinions expressed here are those of the researchers and the host and not of Georgia Southern University or the University System of Georgia. We would like to give a shout out to Purple Planet for our bumper music. Join us next time for Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars.